Let's be honest. Life's hard sometimes. We get discouraged, struggle in our faith, and it's easy to feel alone. Despite how you might feel sometimes, know that God's got your back. And so do we. Vision's prayer line team are ready to pray for whatever you're going through. Text your prayer request to 0401 132 888 and we will be praying for you. Or click prayerline at vision.org.au. That's 0401 132 888 or vision.org.au. It's another way Vision is helping you look to God daily. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepped out of the lunar module on the 20th of July 1969, Buzz Aldrin unpacked a small plastic container of wine and some bread. He'd brought them to the moon from Webster Presbyterian Church near Houston, where he was an elder. In his book entitled Magnificent Desolation, he told the story of how he radioed to NASA. He said, I'd like to request a few moments of silence and to invite each person listening in, wherever and whomever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. He then ate and drank the communion elements. Buzz Aldrin said in a 1970 copy of Guideposts magazine, where he's quoted as saying, I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given me. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine curled slowly and gracefully up the side of the cup. It was interesting to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the first food eaten there were communion elements. Well, we're going to talk all things to do with the moon and creation today with our special guest, Dr. Mark Harwood, who played a key role in the development of Australia's national satellite system. He's now retired from the aerospace industry, where he was general manager, strategy and planning for Optus Satellite Business. In his university years, he was a closet Christian, but these days... He's one of those magnificent men on the team at Creation Ministries where he contends for the scientific credibility and gospel relevance of the Genesis account of creation. Dr. Mark Harwood, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. It's a great privilege to be a part of the program. Mark, I want to talk all sorts of different dimensions today with you all about the moon and we'll come back to the communion service that was held just before the moon walk. But uh, let me ask you where you were on the day that the moon landing happened. Well, I remember it very, very well. In fact, um, giving away my age, but I turned 21 that year. I was only 20 at the time, but... Um, I was in the uh, lounge room at my home uh, watching the television with my sister-in-law, as it happened, who's uh, actually, uh, it was her very birthday that day, her 21st birthday. Now, just a piece of trivia for your listeners, in Australia, the moonwalk actually happened on the 21st of July, not the 20th, because it was the 21st in Australia, whilst it was the 20th in the U.S., 
So there you go. <laughs> yes, that's right. And uh, we've always got to be mindful of the different time zones. Uh, I'll just let you in. Uh, I'm 54 years of age, so uh, I was just four years old at the moon landing. But I distinctly remember... Uh, being in kindergarten at the time and uh, my whole kindergarten class uh, was taken to the home of the kindergarten teacher and the whole group of us sat around a television set and watched a little bit of a snowy image but uh, as a four-year-old I can distinctly remember uh, watching the moon landing such a significant event that it was that uh, as I understand it and you'll hear people testifying to this the whole world stood still for a few moments and yes, were connected yes, around this event. It is, was so significant. I remember that snowy black and white image, yes. but it was nonetheless a dramatic moment and a moment which uh, has gone down in history as perhaps the greatest achievement, technological achievement of mankind. Really awesome. It was awesome. Let's come back to this communion service. A communion service on the moon. There were three astronauts in the lunar module, the Eagle, and uh, as I understand it, only one of them was a Christian in the sense that uh, we might say is someone who was an active believer, uh, and that, of course, Buzz Aldrin. But uh, what's your understanding of, of that communion service? There's a, there's a deeper story to tell here, but what are your thoughts on it? I think it was very, very significant that he took that moment to do that. Um, I think you're right. He was uh, perhaps the only really strongly committed Christian um, Armstrong was uh, was with him and uh, and watched uh, as it happened um, uh, in a you know a reverent way, but he didn't partake. Um, interestingly, in the December beforehand, in December of 1968, in the Apollo 8 mission, um, they witnessed the rising of the moon of the Earth, sorry, over the moon's horizon, and as they did so, the astronauts on board, Anders Lovell and Borman read from Genesis chapter 1 and that was a very significant uh, occasion as well the NASA mission directors had said to them uh, when this happens they said just say something appropriate and so the astronauts between the three of them decided that they would read an extract from Genesis chapter 1 and what's really interesting is that um, not everyone of course um, thought that was a good idea and Madeleine Murray O'Hare who is a rabid atheist of the day, actually sued NASA for allowing the astronauts to read from the Bible. Um, the case was thrown out of court, but NASA was very sensitive about it, and for that reason, they were fairly quiet about the communion service that Buzz Aldrin held uh, as they were seated there in the, on the, in the module on the moon. In fact, I have a very small snippet of that Bible reading that came from the Apollo 8 mission. Let's have a little listen to it, and we'll come back some, and talk some more in just a moment. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Well, just a little bit of that special 
moment there uh, where the Apollo 8 mission, in fact, uh, were talking about uh, the uh, the Genesis account. Uh, and, of course, uh, let me just pick up on this for a few moments here, Mark. Uh, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, uh, a rabid atheist, and uh, was taking legal action against NASA. Uh, isn't it interesting that we might be reflecting on something that happened 50 years ago where an atheist uh, was having this effect on whether or not there would be, you know, any sort of public display of Christian faith. Uh, this sort of thing really is rearing its head right now where uh, people even feel quite uncomfortable sometimes even sharing their own faith. Uh, but this was happening 50 years ago around the moon flight. Yes, indeed it was. And in fact, it's been a, a consistent um, uh, opposition, I guess, uh, to Christianity for, for many, many years. People are just not um, prepared to hear the Christian message. They don't want there to be a God. And uh, it's a tragic situation, but of course it reflects the state of mankind, which um, is that we are all subject to that curse of original sin way back at the beginning when Adam rebelled against God. And people have tried to get rid of God um, by whatever means ever since. But it's, it is sad that today a lot of Christians feel intimidated but, you know, I think there's change happening, Neil. I think uh, Christians are becoming more emboldened, particularly as we start to understand that the evidence in the world around us is so overwhelmingly for the reality of a creator God. And the idea that the universe just made itself by accident is just increasingly untenable as every day passes. There's a number of astronauts just to draw attention to before we move on because uh, I'd love to talk about the faith of people who are involved in space exploration and we'll talk about your own faith and your own uh, efforts and career when it's come to uh, satellite technology in just a few moments, Mark. But uh, it was Frank Borman who uh, read that passage from Genesis. There was other astronauts too. James Irwin who walked on the moon in 1971 later became an evangelical minister. He often described the lunar mission as a revelation. In his words, I felt the power of God as I'd never felt it before. Charles Duke, who followed Irwin to the moon, later became an active uh, missionary. As he explained, I make speeches about walking on the moon and walking with the Son of God. Then there was Guy Gardner, a veteran astronaut who speaks in churches on the reality of God. And then there was astronaut John Glenn, who once proclaimed from orbit, to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is to me impossible. Uh, it's interesting to reflect on all of those astronauts and people who are involved in space exploration, that God was very much central to their thoughts. Mark, this is something that has been a part of space exploration, obviously, since the beginning. It has. It has indeed. And there are always uh, those people who will see with the eyes of faith the hand of the Creator God in the world around us. And uh, I'd have to say I'm one of those. Um, it is so clear to me that this universe, this creation uh, the, the wonder of, uh, of mankind could not possibly have just come about by chance. And so as you look at those things, you just see God's handiwork. You see his loving, uh, creative genius at work in so many different ways. And to look at the world like that and to honour him is to give praise to him, which is exactly what we're designed to do. 
I mentioned in the introduction you were a closet Christian in your university years and in this stage of your career uh, you're out there contending for the scientific credibility, the gospel relevance of the Genesis account of creation. What was the tipping point for you, Mark? Well, that's an interesting question. For me it was a long journey. I became a Christian when I was just 10 years old, Neil, but uh, I didn't really have um, a clear understanding of this whole issue of origins, and I just assumed that, well, God must have used the evolutionary processes to create. I was studying science, and uh, it all seemed to be factual, and, you know, it was, it's a given. So somehow or other, we, we have to fit this evolutionary story into the Bible. Um, but it left me very confused, and uh, as a young man growing up, I couldn't answer my own questions about my faith. Very basic things like, uh, why did Jesus die for me? You know, that didn't make any sense to me. I, I used to reason like this. Um, if, uh, you know, why couldn't God have, uh, have come to the earth in human form as Jesus, shown us how to live a good life and how to relate to our Heavenly Father, and then have been transfigured back up into heaven? What was the point of the cross? And, you know, I, I couldn't figure it out. And because I couldn't answer my own questions, I wasn't able to share my faith because people might ask me, well, Mark, why did Jesus die? And I couldn't answer. Um, and so whilst I was a Christian, I was a born-again believer, uh, my head wasn't in the same place. You know, I was loving the Lord with my heart but not my head. And uh, it wasn't until after my postgraduate work, in fact, that the Lord really confronted me over this question of origins. And uh, that, that was an interesting journey um, because I was reading a book uh, by Billy Graham, in fact. It was a book called Peace with God. Uh, it's an old book. It's probably still around. But uh, in it, there's a chapter on sin. And Billy Graham says something to the effect of, Adam was no gibbering caveman, you know, he was fully mature, developed. In other words, he made a conscious and deliberate decision to rebel against God. And I remember as I read that, I felt as though the Lord spoke to me and said, do you believe that? And I remember thinking, well, yes, I do believe that. And then the, the processes began. I thought, well, if that's true, that means Adam's death, Adam's sin rather, brought death into the world. So you can't have death before Adam. And if you can't have death before Adam, evolution becomes theologically impossible. And that was a real revelation to me. And that started me on a whole journey of relearning and rereading all my science, but from a different perspective, a biblical perspective. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, anticipating what's coming on the weekend, the celebration of 50 years since the first uh, landing on the moon, a man walking on the moon. Of course, that was Neil Armstrong. Uh, Space Authority Dr. Mark Harwood is our guest. He played a key role in the development of Australia's national satellite system and uh, was one of the designers of the original Optus satellite. And uh, you're, you've got a special interest in all things space, Mark, but let's uh, keep our focus on the moon. When we talk about the origin of the moon, uh, we can go back to the Genesis account and talk about lights in the sky by night and lights in the sky by day. When people talk about the origin of the moon, how do you start to unpack and explain that? Well, it's a very interesting question. It's, it's one of the most perplexing issues today, would you believe, 
It's so close to the Earth. It's uh, one of the most studied objects uh, in space. We've actually walked on it. And yet scientists today really do not have a plausible explanation for its origin. In fact, one of the reasons that um, motivated the Apollo missions was to answer the question of how did the moon come about? And there were three theories that were around at the time. One was um, called the, the fission theory, which was the idea that the moon um, began right at the beginning when, when the Earth was um, a hot molten blob. And as it spun, some of the uh, Earth's material spun off and uh, that then ultimately ended up cooling down in the Earth, uh, in orbit around the Earth rather, and became our moon. Um, and then there was the idea that uh, perhaps the moon was um, uh, an object that was wandering through the solar system and got captured by the Earth, and uh, there it is now in orbit around the Earth. And uh, the third theory um, was that it uh, just aggregated in the same way that the Earth, they believe, aggregated from a swirling cloud of of dust and gas and it just happened to form in the same area as the Earth and ended up being captured by the Earth's orbit, Earth's gravitational field. Um, so they were the three sort of prevalent ideas at the time, the fission theory, the capture theory and the co-creation theory. So the Apollo missions actually sampled moon rocks. They collected over 300 kilograms over the course of a number of programs and brought the rocks back to Earth. And from examination of all of those things, they concluded that all three of those ideas failed. So they came up with a complete blank, and that gave rise to the fourth and what is now the current theory known as the giant impact hypothesis. And the idea here is that there was some um, huge uh, object, a uh, thing about the size of Mars, that crashed into the Earth in its um, very early stages, and uh, that caused a massive amount of debris to be ejected from that collision, and that debris is what uh, finally coalesced as our moon, and the uh, resultant collision uh, left what's what we now call our Earth. But every single one of these theories has very significant problems. Um, and in fact, the reason the giant impact hypothesis is current today is that the other three fail. So it's kind of like its best support is the absence of any better argument, um, which is not very, very, a very sound scientific basis at all. So when we talk about the moon and its distance from the Earth, and uh, you know, for those listeners who were diligent enough to be up early this morning and seeing even the uh, lunar eclipse, uh, which mm. is significant thing that we could have been talking about the moon just if that was happening. But, of course, we're talking about uh, man walking on the moon. But when we talk about the positioning of the moon, the size of the moon, the way that the moon is even uh, moving away from the Earth at a very, very small rate each year, these things, how do they fit with a Genesis account uh, of the moon as part of God's creation and the Earth? Well, the best way to explain the origin of the moon is by reading Genesis chapter 1, and it says on the fourth day of the creation of the creation week, God created the sun, moon, and the stars. And uh, he ordained that the, the sun, which he called the greater light, would rule the day, and the moon, which he called a lesser light, would rule the night. You see, there is no better explanation for the existence of the moon than that it is indeed a created object just like the rest of the solar system and the universe is created. In fact, this problem of finding a, 
a naturalistic explanation for the origin of the moon is so great that a leading um, scientist, a guy called uh, Professor Erwin Shapiro, who was a director of um, the Harvard, sorry, the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, uh, he said that since there are no good explanations for the origin of the moon, the best explanation is that the moon is an illusion. Uh, he, he was joking, of course, but that's very telling, isn't it? That there's just no way you can explain it. But when we turn to the book of Genesis, we see the creator's account of what he did and why he did it. And now, I imagine... It's interesting you mentioned the fact that the moon is receding from us. You know, we can tell that because the Apollo mission left behind on the surface of the moon a little object or several of them actually called corner reflectors. And corner reflectors are like the cat's eyes on the road. When you're driving along with your headlights, no matter what direction the light from your headlights arrives at the cat's eyes, it reflects the light straight back to you. And that's how come they're so visible as you're driving. Well, these corner reflectors, um, they're not cat's eyes, a bit more sophisticated than that, but that's the principle, have been placed on the surface of the moon. So scientists fire high-powered lasers at the moon and they can time uh, very accurately how long it takes the light to travel from the Earth to the moon, bounce back from the corner reflectors and come back to the Earth again. And from analysing that data, they've concluded that the moon is receding at just under four centimetres every year. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but as the moon spirals outwards, it means that the Earth is slowing down a little because it's exchanging angular momentum. And it also, interestingly, provides a way of putting an upper limit on the age of the Earth-Moon system. And the way that works, Neil, is, is like this. If you wind the process backwards, then the Moon would ultimately have been so close to the Earth that um, you could say this is the earliest possible time and there is a, a, a minimum distance, by the way. If it's too close, it just gets torn apart by the Earth's gravitational field. So from that point out to where it is would have uh, taken only, and I say only, uh, 1,500 million years. But the problem is that's way too short for the assumed age of the Earth-Moon system, which is about 4,500 million years. So the secularists are perplexed. It seems as though the Earth-Moon system places much too young an age on the Earth-Moon for the evolutionary story to be true. But of course, if we read what the Bible says, it says that God created all those things just a few thousand years ago, not billions at all. Okay, we'll talk some more about these issues, uh, but we have a number of callers waiting on the line, so we'll need to go through fairly quickly. Let's hear from Anne in Labrador. Hello, Anne. Thanks for waiting patiently. What are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts is that it was so wonderful when I was about 14 to see them land, you know, on the moon. And also, I'm so grateful that years and years ago, now I was able to meet Buzz Ostrin, and he came to our our church and he talked about that so it was great to actually meet the person who landed on the moon as well and wow, that's, that's fabulous wonderful. your thoughts uh, mark for Anne? yeah i would think that would be uh, really very impressive to actually meet the guys um but uh, yeah you know that that would be that that'd be great i'd love to have done that you know just an interesting little bit of trivia uh, the guy who was the mission director for the Apollo 11 mission and several others was a guy called Gene Krantz, and uh, he was wearing a 
brand new Seiko 5 watch. And, uh, you know, at that time, my father bought me my 21st birthday present, which was a Seiko 5 watch, the same model. And I'm actually still wearing it today, 50 years later, and it keeps perfectly accurate time. Absolutely wonderful. So all those little links back to those original events are really quite impressive. Amazing. Thank you, Anne, from Labrador. Let's take another call. Tony is in York in WA. Hi, Tony. Welcome along. Yes, hi there, uh, Doctor, and uh, and guys, um, I also had a Seiko watch I lost in the ocean. I'm, I hope it's still going. I'm sure it is. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> um, I was just thinking you said it about impact theories. It might be a little bit off track, but just wondering uh, at the Doctor's thoughts on Wormwood and uh, Planet X, Nibiru. If is it visiting again? Um, did it visit? Um, Steve Chickalanti seems to think it was the reason why um, there was the three hours of darkness or the, the crucifixion. Um, also, um, the reason, um, you know, going back about the Gulf of Mexico, the oil-rich area there, and it pushed through... OK, we're coming up to news fairly quickly. Uh, is there a response we can do quickly on that one, or we can come back afterwards, after the news, Mark? Well, look, look just quickly, um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, about Planet X. Uh, people are looking for, um, uh, you know, another planet in our solar system. And um, at this stage, uh, nothing has uh, been confirmed. I'm not too sure about the link to the crucifixion. Um, I think that was a a supernatural event that was happening when that darkness fell. Uh, Mark, we're going to take some more calls very shortly. 1-800-316-316. But we've been talking about some of these wonderful evidences of God's hand in the placement of the moon. In fact... Uh, it's so significant that it's essential to the survival of human life. Uh, what are your thoughts on what the moon produces for life on Earth? Well, in fact, uh, Neil, you're absolutely right there. The moon's position and its size are tremendously important. The moon is actually extremely large compared to all the other moons in our solar system. Uh, it's about one-eightieth of the mass of the Earth. But other moons orbiting other planets in our solar system are just tiny little objects compared to their host planet. Um, So it's significant in that it's uh, quite a large object. And uh, its distance away is very important because the amount of gravitational attraction that it exerts on the ocean is what causes the tides to ebb and flow in our coastal regions all around the Earth. And that washing, that constant flow of water is uh, important to keep oxygenating the water so that marine life can thrive. And that, of course, is a fundamental part of the whole the ecology of life on Earth. Um, if the uh, moon wasn't there, the coastal areas would become stagnant and just unsuitable for life. But if the moon was too close to us, then you would have massive and destructive tides. Twice a day, they would come thundering up onto the coast, causing massive erosion and and, uh, destruction. But if the moon, on the other hand, was too far away, then there'd be insufficient tidal action to to allow coastal life to thrive. So the tides are a, a direct result of the size and the position of the moon and the frequency with which they occur. And uh, that's a reflection of God's careful design and uh, amazing brilliance in how he created the Earth-Moon system as a place uh, for mankind to live on the Earth. So it's not just an accidental thing that the writer of those early chapters of Genesis 
includes this idea of the light in the sky with reference to the moon as being part of the creation because it's so important that life on Earth couldn't exist without it. That's right. And interestingly, um, the, in, in the Genesis account, it doesn't actually name the sun and the moon. It says a greater light for the sun and a lesser light for the moon. See, I believe God knew that mankind would have a propensity to worship the, the heavenly bodies. And so rather than creating the, uh, the heavenly bodies at the beginning of creation, so people might think that maybe they were the author of, uh, of all of the universe, or rather than having them at the end, so people might think maybe the whole purpose of creation was to make the heavenly bodies, he creates them in the middle of creation week, and he doesn't even give them a name. It's like he's trying to downplay the importance of the sun and the moon. Uh, nonetheless, of course, we know over history that many different people groups have indeed worshipped them. But the other fascinating thing, Neil, about them is that when we look at the moon from the surface of the earth, and then we look at the size of the sun, they have about the same size. Although the, the um, sun is 400 times bigger than the moon it's 400 times further away so it appears to be the same size and what that means is that eclipses are possible and uh, particularly solar eclipses and in a solar eclipse the moon comes between the sun and the earth and if you're just at the right place on the earth's surface the moon totally blocks out the light from the sun and uh, I, I believe God designed it that way for very good reason because we now were able to learn a great deal about the, uh, about the sun and how it works. In fact, the element of helium was discovered because of a total solar eclipse. People could see for the very first time the corona that surrounds the sun, which otherwise uh, is invisible to us. Well, what On do we the other end of the scale, of course, is the lunar eclipse, like yeah. we saw this morning, and that's when the Earth comes between the sun and the moon, and the moon passes through the Earth's shadow. This morning's eclipse was what's called a partial eclipse. It was just a, a glancing uh, blow, if you like, as it passed through the edge of the Earth's shadow. 1-800-316-316. To join our talkback conversation, you can leave a note too on our Facebook page. There's been a number of comments there just to draw some reference to uh, Peter, who says, as a seven-year-old, I was in grade two watching this moon landing with my eyes glued to the black and white TV. Amazed. Uh, there's a comment from Mike in Tasmania who says, Neil, Rick Husband, US Air Force, a Christian was the commander of the STS-107 Columbia, which disintegrated upon re-entry. I read his biography, a very good read, a little plug there. Then there's Narelle who says, I wasn't born when the moon landing happened, but I believe humanity is a bit greedy when it comes to needing to discover everything. There's nothing wrong with a mystery. I wonder whether you've got any comment on that last one there, uh, Mark. Uh, nothing wrong with a bit of mystery. Uh, but, uh, you know, a little bit greedy to discover. There is something in, there, in in the heart of humanity, isn't there, that wants to discover the orderliness of creation. What would your Indeed, thoughts be I for someone like Narelle? It reflects the way we've been made in God's image, and God sort of invites us to discover. One of the Proverbs, I uh, can't remember which one off the top of my head, says that it's the glory of kings to conceal, sorry, glory of God to conceal a matter but the glory of kings to search a matter out. 
And uh, if we realise that as children of God we are in fact royalty, then I think the the king's analogy applies to us. And uh, God has designed us to want to know, to want to understand. And the way he's uh, placed our sun and moon and uh, our solar system in the galaxy all invites us to discover more and more about the world which he has made. The purpose being, of course, that we should give glory to him as the creator. Of course, we're not going to know everything, and uh, indeed I would agree that uh, mystery is important because if we could understand absolutely everything, then uh, we would understand God entirely. And of course, no human mind can ever conceive all that there is to know about God and his glory. But I think it's um, a way in which we can glorify God uh, by learning more about how the universe works and how to harness the laws of physics to enable to invent things and do things which um, uh, are for the benefit of man- mankind. Okay, we're taking calls, one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. You can join in our conversation. Let's take a call, Mike, in Tasmania. Hello, Mike. Welcome along. Mike, are you with us? Mike is not with us. one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. if you'd like to join in the conversation, talking about the moon and evidence for creation. Another though of those very significant things is that the moon helps us uh, to stay on the right spin axis on Earth. And I imagine that's got to do with the way that we have seasons. And so uh, without the moon, again, seasons and planting and harvesting might not be possible. What are your thoughts for this whole spin axis and stability issue here, Mark? Well, it tells us in Genesis that uh, God created uh, the seasons. In fact, we read in uh, on the fourth day of creation uh, the purpose behind the, uh, the heavenly bodies um, was to permit us to uh, observe the uh, days and years and seasons and times. And uh, I think whilst there is also uh, a theological significance behind that, there is also the very practical reality of, uh, of the seasons we experience. I, I think God made the earth with its axis carefully tilted so that we do see the cycle of seasons each, each year, and that's very important for how our biosphere works, how plants uh, grow and trees, fruit in season and so on. Um, but the presence of the moon actually helps keep the axis tilt of the Earth stable. Um, over time, that axis could in fact start to wander and move. And the way the Earth, sorry, the way the moon helps keep it stable is because its gravitational field does produce a slight deformation of the shape of the Earth. And so the Earth, uh, it's actually difficult for the Earth to turn away uh, from the moon and and have its axis uh, become unstable. So it's uh, another one of those uh, design features. Um, You know, we we mentioned earlier the the lunar eclipse this morning. Um, I did want to just point out quickly that when people observed the shape of the shadow of the Earth as the moon passed through it, they very quickly realised, many, many centuries ago, I might add, that that meant that the Earth must be spherical in shape, a ball, just like the Moon is a ball. And so people have known that the Earth was not flat for um, uh, you know, a very, very long time, thousands of years, in fact. So we often hear this criticism of Christians, particularly those who believe in the Genesis account of creation, that oh, you guys are like flat earthers, you know, you believe all this mythical stuff. But people, and Christians in particular, 
didn't ever actually believe that the earth was flat. Uh, that's one of those um, urban myths, I suppose you could call it, that was developed back in the 1800s by someone who was, in fact, attacking Christianity. And he invented this idea to ridicule Christians. But uh, people have never actually believed that. And the Bible certainly does not teach that the earth is flat. Let's talk about what people believe for a few moments here and come back to the lunar mission and uh, Neil Armstrong, of course, uh, Buzz Aldrin, uh, the other astronaut on board uh, the Eagle uh, was Michael Collins. Uh, Interesting that Neil Armstrong, uh, his faith position described as deist, Uh, Talk about that in just a few moments, but Buzz Aldrin, obviously a Christian, and we come back to, you know, having communion before the first moon walk. And then Michael Collins, a nominal Episcopalian uh, or Anglican uh, Church of England uh, Christian. Uh, There's a certain sense in which there was a real mix there in the lunar module on that very first day, do you ever think about uh, those religious positions and uh, and and where you know people might have stood, what they might have believed, the experiences they were have having as they were about to walk on the moon? Uh, what are your thoughts there, Mark? It, it is interesting, isn't it, how people adopt these positions? Um, the um, the deist position is certainly not a biblical one. It, it basically says that God created the universe; He was the agency, but He has no ongoing um, in, uh, interaction with it. He sort of um, put it all together and lit the fuse, if you like, and then just sat back and watched it all happen. And uh, that kind of a, a view, this remote, um, detached, um, uninterested God, comes about from, um, or today it's reinforced by an acceptance of the evolutionary story of origins, where everything is supposed to have come about through random processes and uh, you know, over vast periods of time, but without any divine direction. Um, and I guess I struggled with that before I understood the truth of Genesis, because I was trying to mix the evolutionary story in with my developing biblical worldview. But you see, if you accept the evolutionary story, then you have to assume that God is kind of detached and removed from all that's happening, and, and, and that leads you into this position of deism. But the reality is, of course, quite the reverse. God has been intimately involved in the affairs of man and the affairs of earth. You just simply have to read your Bible to see uh, how that is uh, continually the case right throughout all of history, even to the point, of course, of coming in human form in the person of Jesus because he loved the world so much to pay the price for our sins so that we could be back in fellowship again with him through faith. So God is a very active, engaged, and, um, uh, you know, he's he's, uh, involved in his creation in the most intimate possible way. He certainly is not a distant, remote, detached God. I think from what we might perceive about people's faith today, this idea of deism is actually much more common than uh, than we often talk about. And a lot of people, as you would say, probably don't even know what that means, this idea of an impersonal God uh, who was a creator there at the beginning, but somehow or other all of the rising secular thought and the evolutionary theory that 
uh, draws people off into a direction that causes them to deny uh, those sorts of things uh, so far as uh, what uh, uh, to deny those sorts of things with regard to uh, creation. Uh, this is something quite common and seems to be emerging uh, that people sort of almost accidentally become deists and ignore the other evidences in all of the dimensions of life that point to the active interested, loving, personal, relational God. Uh, what are your thoughts about the, the contrast there, Mark? I, I think that, uh, that that is entirely true. And, of course, if, as I mentioned, you uh, accept this evolutionary story, then that's um, the kind of direction you end up heading in. Well, one, one of the big issues, of course, is, um, you know, why is there so much suffering in the world if uh, if the Christian God, as the Christians claim, is a, a loving God who cares about each one of us individually, then why doesn't he just fix it all up? Um, but you see, you can't answer that question without going back to the historical account in Genesis where we discover that God created a perfect world that had no suffering, no death, no disease, no sin, uh, none of the emotional anguish that we see in our world today. But it was Adam's rebellion, Adam made in the image of God, as he rebelled against God, that brought separation from God, and with it came all of the bad things that we see in the world today, diseases, death, suffering, and so on. But God didn't leave us in that mess, you see. There was no way out of that, because there's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable to a holy and righteous God. That's why he came in the person of Jesus at just the right time in history, to pay the price for us so that we could, through faith, come back into relationship with him. So when people are faced with the uh, reality of suffering and death, and you know, they, they think, what kind of God is this? He makes a, uh, an amazing world, but then why, why just to watch us live and suffer and die? And, and it all comes back to understanding Genesis as actual history. And that's why I'm so passionate about encouraging people to see the truth of the historical record of Genesis because that allows us to interpret the world around us. We see his amazing creative power in every aspect of science and everything that we can see and experience, but we also know that he's a God of love that is deeply committed to having us in relationship with him, and that's something that we can do through accepting his gift of salvation. Uh, let's take one last call before we wrap things up and uh, just reinforce something very important from our conversation today. But let's hear first uh, from Jim in Margate in Queensland. Hello, Jim. Welcome along. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for such a wonderful uh, topic. We have a wonderful creator God. But we I'll do. just throw a couple of spanners in the work here. Um, I believe in the literal six days. Um, a lot of Christians don't. You could just expand on that for me. That would be great uh, when I discuss it with them. And the other thing is, with so much in the headline, is climate change. Now, um, I believe in looking out for the planet, but I think sometimes this climate change bizarre is just getting out of hand. Uh, so would you like to comment on those two subjects? Thanks, Mike. Yeah, you got a thought there, Mark? For bringing those things up. What I would recommend is that you have a look at uh, our website at creation.com. Uh, it's a really easy web address to remember. There are great articles explaining the six days and how to defend that and why it's actually very important that we do believe that God created in just six days. On the climate change question, that's not really a creation-related issue per se, 
But um, I think what it reflects um, is uh, a, a religious belief which is very widespread in our community and, of course, uh, it's very politicised and, unfortunately, when things become politicised, one of the early casualties is often objective truth. And uh, I think people, um, you know, are, are rightly concerned about how we are using the resources of the planet and by the way, God gave us a mandate to care for his creation. That was right back in Genesis chapter 1, and he's never withdrawn that. So we should be managing the resources that he's given us in a truly God-honoring way. But uh, the, the whole issue of climate is so complex, I personally do not believe that the science is settled by any means. And I think that's borne out by the fact that the predictive models that have been quoted so often are not, in fact, being borne out by the measurements that are still being made on the behaviour of the Earth's climate. I think it's much more involved than that. By the way, the Earth went through a massive climate change from before the flood to after the flood, and it survived. We're still all here, and it's functioning well. So the climate is not actually incredibly critically sensitive. It's really very robust. Um, but you know what? God is, uh, has told us, in his word, that Jesus is going to come again in the last days. So we're not going to be wiped out through climate change. We can be confident of that. Jim from Margate, thank you so much for your call. And just to bring all of these points together, and if we're talking about people who were deist, like Neil Armstrong, who believed there was some creator but detached and impersonal, a force even, that created all things comes back to this very important element. So you've got this contrast to Buzz Aldrin, who had communion before Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, giving glory to God. There is a sense here that while we talk about man's visit to the moon, we compare that to God's visit to earth. And if we're bringing things together here, bringing the focus back to who Jesus Christ is, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, God's perfect representation, the image that is born in as a child, and God's presence, his revelation to humanity. This is what affirms to us, Mark, the reality that it's the God of the Bible who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. I wonder as we just wrap things up, your thoughts on the importance of recognizing Jesus. Oh, absolutely. That is the critical issue. You know, often people say to us, you don't need to get involved in this whole topic of creation. You just need to talk about Jesus. But, you know, it starts at the creation. And as I mentioned before, the reason that Jesus came was because the first Adam brought suffering and death into the world. That's why Paul calls him the last Adam. And he came to be our Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. But it's only, Neil, of course, through belief that the Bible says if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord then and only then will we be saved that means we'll be rescued from the plight that we are in but we can have an eternal destiny with him and know his indwelling presence if by faith we accept his free gift of salvation well That's time's why run the out the creation account is so important 
the creation account is, and I want to point listeners to creation.com and uh, more than 10,000 articles there on all of the elements that you might have questions about with regard to creation, biblical creation, the history of Genesis. Uh, been wonderful to be able to hear these things today with Dr. Mark Harwood, who played a key role in the development of Australia's national satellite system, a true space enthusiast and uh, just wonderful mark to have you as uh, part of 2020 today uh, really appreciate you creation.com is the uh, website and uh, mark just appreciate you so much thank you so much for taking some time to share these things with us today on 2020 thank you neil it's been a great honor before you go thanks for listening there's lots more great audio on demand or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au and remember vision is listener supported your donation large or small will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across australia and around the world learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au